Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. I want to begin today with a, a quick story, tell you the story of a group's activity that my family and I were invited to participate in, the, the Grams were invited to participate in. It was last Saturday, uh, one of our Sunday morning groups, uh, led by Troy McClung and Matt Walker and uh, Mike DeTemple, invited us to come out to uh, one of their places for a shoot-a-palooza. Now here in West Virginia, when our groups get together, we don't just eat, but we do things like this when our groups get together. And so they invited us to come out and hang out for a few hours and to enjoy some fun, and we did. Uh, my girls had never shot guns like this before, so there's Katie. Uh, she's away at a high school retreat with a number of the high schoolers. There's Riley uh, shooting the pistol. There's my wife shooting whatever that is, uh, semi-automatic, A-K-A-R something. I've learned a long time ago not to cross my wife because she is a very, very, very good shot. Uh, but this is a girl named Megan Walker. Megan is, has, has born and grew up here at Bible Center. And Megan's 16 years old. And so after we got done shooting all the pistols and the automatic rifles, we went over to shoot skeet. And Matt Griffith is back there. He's, shoot, he's throwing the skeet up and people are saying pull and different people were hitting him. But you know there was a number of younger boys, younger men in our church, and they were trying to hit him, maybe hitting one out of five, one out of ten. And Megan says from the back, she goes, I want to try. Well, so as soon as she said that, I'm thinking like, one, this is a 12 gauge. You know, two, you're 16. I'm not going to say that because she was a girl, right? I'm not going to get myself in trouble that way. But I was like, you know, bless her heart. Let's, you know, I don't know if this is really best. And she's like, no, I want to try. And so Troy showed her, you know, this is how you shoot the gun. And this is how you shoot the skeet. And she had never shot a 12 gauge before, ever. So she, you know, what am I supposed to say? Troy says, you say pull, right? You say pull. So she gets in position, looks kind of awkward holding the gun. And, and he says pull, she says pull. And Matt Griffith throws the first clay pigeon out, shatters the clay pigeon. First shot, very first shot ever. So I'm like, well, you know, that's in my mind. I'm thinking that's, that's, that's cute. Beginner's luck. That's, that's nice. So she says pull again. Throws it out there, shatters the clay pigeon. A third time, she says, pull. Shoots, shatters the clay pigeon. That day, Megan went four for four on clay pigeons. She turns around to the boys and she says, why is this so hard? And then she hands them the gun and she walks away. She walks away. Now, that's one of my favorite stories from the fall, but I tell you that story to actually lead into our text. There's a difference between shotgun shots and rifle shots. Uh, some of you who are familiar with guns know that a rifle bullet hole looks like this. It's one single directed shot. And then a shotgun shot looks like this. There's a lot of pellets. It goes in, even though it's one general direction, there's a lot of impact. Now, so far in the book of Ephesians, we have looked at a number of rifle shots. This is the fifth message in the book of Ephesians. We had an introductory message but the very first message was from chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and it was very direct. It wasn't hard to find a main point for that text. Uh, the main point was all of God has worked through all of time to save all of us. You can download the podcast. You can watch the video online. And then we looked at the last half of chapter 1. Again, it was a rifle shot, very direct. A praying church is a powerful church. We went into chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, and we saw that we never graduate from grace. That was clearly the emphasis of the text. 
The last half of chapter 2, again, that was last Sunday, unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. All of these have been rifle shots. But as we approach chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians, I want to compare it more to a shotgun shot. Uh, It's not one direct main point, but actually the Apostle Paul, it's almost like he, before he finishes out this section, he just has all these random thoughts, at least in our mind, and he begins sharing them with us. You can picture him sitting in a Roman prison cell or maybe in house arrest, and he begins to communicate these things to his secretary. And in chapter 1, you can see he's about to pray. We're going to look at the prayer next week. But halfway through, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 3, halfway through verse 1, he stops, and there's a dash. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, one more thing. And Paul says, one more thing, and one more thing. And by the time you get through this first section of chapter 3, there are actually six more things that Paul wants us to know before he breaks into this beautiful prayer at the end of chapter 3. And all of them serve one purpose, to encourage us in our faith. The very last verse of verse 13, he tells us, I'm writing these things so that you will not be discouraged. And so this morning I'm preaching, I believe, to some people here, you've been discouraged lately. Some of you've been discouraged for a really, really long time. And some of you just this week had a horrible week. You've had a horrible morning. It's, it's a miracle that you're even here. I'm praying that God will use one of these six encouragements to strengthen your faith, to put heart back into your soul and help you to keep on keeping on. Now, I don't always do this, but I'm going to give you a little warning about the end of the sermon. At the end of the sermon, the takeaway is simply going to be pick one of these six, one of the six encouragements that God wants for your life this week. So as we're going through the six, ask the Lord, Lord, which one provides the greatest encouragement for my heart? Let's go ahead and dive into God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. We have a tradition here at Bible Center where we stand when I read the opening text. Will you stand with me? Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to be by revelation, as I have already briefly written. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make known to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. That's why he's written all of this. Because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why can we be encouraged today? What's the first encouragement? Number one, because Jesus has revealed truth to you that once seemed impossible to know. Jesus has revealed truth to you that once seemed impossible to know. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he uses this word mystery in Revelation. He says, That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly written. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He says, God made it known to me. God revealed it to me. And later he's going to say he did all of that so that I could reveal it to you. If you're new to the church, one thing to remember is that the Bible really is in two halves. They're not equal in size, but there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament was written prior to Jesus, and the New Testament was written after Jesus. So when we think about the Old Testament, uh, one thing to know is that there's a lot in there that's very clear. There's a lot of true stories in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are very, very clear. But there's also a lot in the Old Testament that is like types and shadows, symbolism, pictures that represent other spiritual realities. Uh, Think with me for a minute about maybe the types and shadows that are in books and movies that we may see or read today. If you've ever seen the, the, the movie It, when you see the red balloon, you know what's about to happen when you see the signal of the red balloon. Maybe you see a black cat cross your path. Or maybe in a movie or a book, you, you see a raven perched on the fence. You know that something bigger, something major is about to happen. Well, throughout the Old Testament, we see pictures like this. There are no red balloons in the Old Testament, but there are a number of pictures that like, like you've got a temple and a tabernacle and you've got priests and you've got animal sacrifices. We know because we have the New Testament that all of these things pointed to Jesus. And, but they were mysterious in that prior to the New Testament, people didn't have a full concept or a full understanding of what they meant. So in the New Testament, when we see the word mystery, he's not talking about something that's still hidden. He's talking about something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed in Christ. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 22, 16, one verse says that the Messiah, the Christ, when he comes, he's going to have his hands and his feet pierced. So you can imagine scholars, Jewish scholars prior to Jesus, trying to figure out why in the world, what did he mean the Messiah is going to have his hands and his feet pierced? Like, what does that even mean? Well, we know what it means. It's pointing to the cross. It's pointing to Christ who died on the cross and his hands and his feet were nailed. Another passage that that is sometimes confusing, there are several passages in the Old Testament that talk about people seeing God. More specifically, it's as if they see parts of God the Father. And then there are verses that says nobody can see God, specifically God the Father, and live. 
And so people who want to somehow attack the Bible will sometimes say that that's a contradiction, right? How could Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day if the Bible says no human has ever seen God or God the Father and lived? That was a mystery to scholars until you get to the New Testament. John chapter 1 and verse 18, it's in your notes, says that all of those references had to be Jesus. No one could see God the Father, but plenty of people have seen God the Son. In some way in the Old Testament, they saw what we call the pre-incarnate Christ. And so the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Think about what you know right now about Jesus. All of us know a little bit more, a little bit less, maybe than the person sitting next to us. Think about whatever it is that you know. How is it that you obtained that knowledge? It's only because of what Paul wrote here. Jesus showed Paul. Paul trained other apostles and prophets. These apostles and prophets went to other countries, Africa and Asia and Europe, and they told somebody and they told somebody until the day came that somebody shared the good news with you. And so on your darkest day, when you're the most discouraged, you can be encouraged that Jesus has revealed truth to you that was once impossible to know. Number two, why else can we be encouraged? Number two, Jesus has put people together that once seemed impossible to get along. Jesus has put people together that once seemed impossible to get along. Notice verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel that Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. A few moments ago, I talked about all the different mysteries. But to be fair, in context, verse 6 is the main mystery about which Paul was writing. It was the mystery that Jews and non-Jews could be in the church to make up one body, believing Jewish Christians, believing non-Jewish Christians, Gentiles, that they could all be in one church and actually get along and be one body. Now, this seems mysterious to us. Like, why would that be such a big deal? I mean, we all know people who are Jewish who don't believe in Jesus, but we, some of us know people who are Jewish by ethnicity, but yet they're followers of Christ, and they're in the church, and you get along with them. Like, what's the big deal? Well, let's put it in more of a modern context. It would be like me getting up this morning and reading an article from Google News that said this. In America, there are no more political parties. The Democrats and Republicans have agreed on everything. And now they've united into one political party. That reaction that you felt just now is the same reaction they felt in the early church. Like, yeah, right. Like, yeah, yeah, right. Jews and non-Jews coming together in one body as believers in Jesus. Yeah, right. It would be like somebody saying that there's no longer going to be a West Virginia University and no longer going to be an Ohio State University, but they're going to come together on the border and build one school, one united mission. Some of you are like, over my dead body, they're going to do that, right? right. But that's what it felt like to the early church. There were promises in the Old Testament that Gentiles and people of all nations were going to come to faith, but there was no indication anywhere in the Old Testament that they would be one body with equal standing 
and equal access to God. This is why Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29 says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you were Abraham's seed. Listen to that. I'll read that again. If you, Christian, no matter what nation you're from, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I think if the Apostle Paul were alive today, there's an error or there's an overemphasis in our day that probably wasn't really an overemphasis in his day. But the overemphasis in our day is a little bit different, but I want to speak to it as your pastor. And the overemphasis is this. I'll ask you a question. Do we believe in the future that there are promises of blessing for Israel? Yes or no? Well, I believe so. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 tells us there's coming a day when the Jewish nation, that people of Jewish ethnicity in droves are going to come to faith in Christ. That is a beautiful, beautiful promise. Here's where I'm afraid in our culture, whatever that culture is, we overemphasize sometimes almost as if, and I've grown up in this, so I feel like I can speak into it. We so overemphasize the spirituality of Israel that somehow we think that because we're not Jewish by birth, that somehow our access to God is less. Now, if this is new to you and you've never heard it, just ignore it. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I have put like 10, 11, 12 verses right here in your notes. I'm not going to be able to read them all today, but I would encourage you to go home and study them and read them. And I wanted to encourage your heart to think, oh my goodness, I've got the same spiritual blessings that someone from the nation of Israel has who's put their faith in Christ. It's a beautiful story that should encourage your heart. Number three, Why be encouraged today? Because Jesus has used people that once seemed impossible to be used. Jesus has used people that once seemed impossible to be used. Notice chapter 3 and verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. After I put this sermon together, I Uh, The next day, after it had already been put in print, I realized that the word used probably needed to be explained. We use the word used sometimes in a bad way, like this person used me. Um, I don't mean this in a bad way. This This is a positive way. God chose Paul. He drafted Paul. He enlisted Paul into his service, which is why Paul says in verse 2, he says, Surely you must have heard the story about how God called me into his service. The reason Paul said that is because it was such a crazy, dramatic story. He's like, surely you've heard about this. This is a big deal. If you want to read about it, you can read about it in Acts chapter 9 or in Acts chapter 22. Essentially, Paul was a terrorist. Paul hunted down Christians to have them killed before he became a Christian himself. The very first martyr of the church, we find it, his name is Stephen in Acts chapter 8. But if you read the same story in Acts chapter 22, it seemed that Paul had some authority. He had to give the green light about who died and who didn't. So Paul was, he was up in the ranks. He had authority to determine 
who died. He was a terrorist to the early church. But you know, one thing, the older I get, I'm learning about God, is that God loves to save people from whom he can get the most glory. God loves to save people and open their heart to saving grace in such a way that causes us to scratch our heads, right? Like if you were to think about people, hey, I think that person would make a good Christian because they're so good. That's not the way God thinks. God says, you know what? I'm going to find somebody, and when I save them, it's going to absolutely make everybody's jaws drop because that's what grace does. I love to read stories in the news, and I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. I pray by God's grace for every person who says, hey, I've professed Christ. I want to live for Christ now. I think about that in terms of Kanye West. Man, pray for him. Pray that he gets in a good church and grows in the faith. Our job is not to sit back and wonder or criticize, but to celebrate when someone comes to faith in Christ. In your lifetime, no doubt, you've seen friends and coworkers come to faith in Jesus, family members. You didn't think they would ever be saved. One of my close friends here in the church, he's not here this morning because his son, who lives in a different part of the valley, We've prayed for him for almost four years to be saved. Almost four years. Prayed for him to be saved. And through a series of networking, by the grace of God, one of our other members, his brothers, was part of a church, led him to Jesus Christ last week. And he texts me out of the blue. And he said, hey, Matt, Colin got saved. Colin trusted Jesus. This is going to be baptized on Sunday. That guy has permission not to be here because his son's getting baptized at another church. That's what the grace of God does. And God loves to do that and use people. All right, we got to get back to our text. All right, verse, verse 7. Just continuing this thought. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. But although I am less than least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Paul said, I am least of all the least. Was Paul exercising false humility? I don't think so, because he knew his past. And he knew what he deserved, and so he was just acknowledging, I don't deserve the grace I've received. But this isn't just something for people who are did bad things before they trusted Jesus. One thing I appreciate about the Apostle Paul is he was so honest about his sin even after he trusted Jesus. If you read Romans chapter 7, Paul gets so transparent about his struggles as a sinner. He said things that some of us would never say in our community group, right? Like in community group, somebody's like, hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. You know, loving Jesus, loving God, loving my family. Been a little tired lately. You know, that's kind of what we share. Paul is like, look, I have tendencies. I have desires. I have cravings that are so bad. Even after I'm a Christian, I pray daily, God, deliver me from the body of this death. He acknowledged that he was still a broken person in the flesh though a Christian. And Paul says, if God can use me, God can use you. Be encouraged. God wants to use people that seem impossible to be used. Number four, why be encouraged today? Because Jesus has won spiritual battles for you that once seemed impossible to win. Jesus has won spiritual battles for you that once seemed impossible to win. 
Remember the opening illustration about the shotgun. This is just six encouragements. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, he writes this. This intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you're taking notes, I'll give you some things to write down. Manifold wisdom. What does manifold mean? It means multifaceted. Literally, the word means multifaceted. It refers to an intricately, intricately cut diamond. And what Paul is saying is, like a diamond, this is, you've heard me use it before, and I couldn't remember what text I got it from, but it was from this text. When Paul says, you look at God, he's like a multifaceted diamond. Just when you think you have him figured out, you look at him from another angle, and you don't have him figured out. This same word was translated in the original to refer to floral arrangements, the diversity of floral arrangements, embroidered cloth, woven carpets, and crowns with exquisite jewels. It could be translated richly diversified. In other words, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. So verse 10, he says, God's purpose is to show his manifold wisdom to somebody. To whom does God want to show his manifold wisdom? It's right here in the text. He says, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. If you're taking notes, you can write down the word demons and angels. Angels and demons. This same word is used to refer to angels and demons in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 1, and Colossians chapter 2. The context determines whether or not they're good angels or bad angels. And so all Paul is saying here is, I want the wisdom of God to be declared... Not just to the nations, that's in other parts of the Bible. I want the wisdom of God to be declared to the supernatural realm. The good angels and the bad angels. You say, well, okay, how is God going to do this? How is God going to declare his manifold wisdom to the spiritual realm? It's right here in the text. Through the church. Through the church. Through the church is how God shows His grace to the world. The church is to be a new society where the spiritual realm and the world can see what family life is like, what good business practices are like, what race relationships are like, what gender relationships are like, what all of life will be like under the rule and reign of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the purpose of the church, the glory of Christ. Now, we're going to look more at that next week. But in your notes is Colossians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. We'll not turn there. But in both of those texts, Paul looks at the good angels and the bad angels in relationship to the church. In Colossians chapter 2, he uses this picture of a parade. And essentially what he says is that Jesus uses the church almost like a triumphal parade in front of the angels and demons to show how good His grace really is. It's an amazing picture. In Hebrews chapter 12, in your notes, he uses the picture of the good angels, and he says, hey, by the way, when you come to church, you not only gather with other people, but he says you gather with an innumerable number of angels. Church, do not miss this. 
This gives me chills to even talk about. When we gather as a church, we gather with the angels. They don't know salvation like we know salvation. But God says somehow they glory in God's grace to us. Why do they glory in God's grace to the church? Because they know what we do when we're not in church. They know who we are. And yet they marvel that God keeps pouring grace and pouring grace like waves of the sea. God says, the reason I have saved you, church, is to not only be a testimony to the world, but to be a testimony to the angels. I do not emphasize church because it's my job. I emphasize church because it's the eternal purpose of God. I hope church, and I know it is or you wouldn't be here, is a priority in your life. May church never just be, well, this weekend I've got this and this weekend I've got that and I think think I'll do church this month. But may church be what Jesus intended. He says it is a supernatural billboard of the grace and wisdom of God. Be encouraged. Church, you're a part of that. Number five, why be encouraged today? Because Jesus has given you access to God that once seemed impossible to experience. Jesus has given you access to God that once seemed impossible to experience. Verse 12, it's, he just throws it in here. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. From Jewish history, we see this is a stark contrast to the Day of Atonement. There was one day a year when the high priest and only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies of the temple or the tabernacle. If anybody else but the high priest went in and had that access, that almost face-to-face conversation with God, if anybody else went in, they would die. If the high priest didn't do something right, he would die. And the wording here that he's using is that same wording of the temple and the tabernacle. He is saying, you have access to the Holy of Holies. Remember in the book of Matthew and Mark, it says that after Jesus was crucified, if you've never read it, read the first two books of the New Testament. It says that when Jesus was crucified, God tore the veil to the Holy of Holies. That means now you have access as a priest through Jesus, the high priest, to pray anytime, to pray about anything. He says you have freedom to pray. This word freedom was used in classical Greek. A lot of our democratic practices we derive from a Greco-Roman society. If you were a Roman citizen, you had this kind of freedom. There were certain venues where you as a Roman citizen could say whatever you want, or at least you were, depending on who the emperor was, you were supposed to be able to say whatever you want and have freedom of speech. That's the Greek word here in Hebrews or Ephesians 3.12. You have freedom to God to walk into the throne room of God and pray and say whatever you think. That's the book of Psalms. As we've gone through the Psalms the last few summers, we see that we pray the Psalms back to God. Sometimes the words that we pray to God are honest, but they're they're not pretty. God says, that's all right. You have that kind of access. Don't be, I don't repulse you. I don't kick you out. If you're a believer, I want you with me. 
Be encouraged. Jesus has given you access to God that once seemed impossible to experience. Finally, number six, why can you be encouraged today? Because Jesus has brought glory out of your suffering that once seemed impossible to be good. Jesus has brought glory out of your suffering that once seemed impossible to be good. Paul's ministry is bracketed by hardship. And so is this text. It's bracketed by hardship. The first, this is all one sentence, verse 1 through verse 13. And in verse 1, he talks about suffering. And then in verse 13, we'll close in a moment, he talks about suffering. Verse 1, he says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul was literally a prisoner in that he was in Roman house arrest. He'd been there for at least two years, maybe three. Prior to that, he was in jail for two years in Caesarea. So he's been in prison four or five years when he writes this from Rome. It was shortly after he left Ephesus. Not long after that, he went to jail. Why did he go to jail? This verse says, for the sake of the Gentiles. The story is in Acts chapter 21, and I encourage you to read it this week on your own. But in Acts chapter 21, Paul gets up and is preaching the message of salvation. Nobody really gets mad in Acts 21 while Paul is preaching salvation until he says, oh yeah, by the way, God wants to provide equal salvation for the Gentiles as he does the Jews. Like, it's almost like they would have let him off the hook. Okay, you believe in this Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Okay. But as soon as Paul starts preaching that now there's equal standing in the church for Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ, they go mad. They go nuts. And they throw him in jail, which is why Paul says in this verse, that's why I'm in prison, for the sake of you Gentiles. The people of Israel threw me in jail because they got mad that I was preaching. You had the same access. But notice of whom he's a prisoner. It's not just of Israel. It's not just of Rome. He said, I'm a prisoner of whom? Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? He is saying, I accept my suffering. I don't like my suffering, but I accept my suffering as the perfect divine will of God because I know God is somehow going to use my suffering for more people to be saved. He says the same thing in the last verse, verse 13. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. He says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I am willing to sacrifice whatever Jesus calls me to sacrifice so that more people can be saved. I'll ask you today, it's somewhat of a shotgun message. What are you willing to sacrifice so that more people can be saved? If God invites you to sacrifice your time, are you willing to give some of your time so that more people can be saved? What about your talents? Some of you have got some tremendous talents and abilities and personalities and spiritual gifts, and the Lord's been nugging or tugging at your heart to, to sacrifice your, your time. Why, why would, give your talents. 
What about your treasures? We talk a lot about giving. But the truth is, it's part of our worship, just like every other aspect is part of our worship. God doesn't need your money, but God wants your heart. Are you willing to sacrifice your treasure for God to do great work in this city and around the world with the gospel? What about your comfort? This is one really that God's been working in my heart this week. Sometimes we we get excited to think about sacrificing something else when actually what God's calling us to sacrifice many times is right in front of us. We get mad when he takes away our comfort. We get mad when we get the diagnosis. And I can only imagine what some of you are going through. We get mad when all of a sudden life takes a turn that we didn't expect. We get mad. And Paul says, no, no, no. See that. And I'll need you one day to tell me this. See that as a providential U-turn so that more people can come to faith in Christ. I told you at the beginning of this message, I was going to ask you to pick one. You can certainly think about all six, but if you're like me, one's enough for the week. Which one would the Lord have you remember this week? Be encouraged because, number one, Jesus has revealed truth to you that once seemed impossible to know. Number two, Jesus has put people together that once seemed impossible to get along. Number three, Jesus has used people that once seemed impossible to be used. Number four, Jesus has won spiritual battles for you that once seemed impossible to win. Jesus has given you access to God that once seemed impossible to experience. And number six, Jesus has brought glory out of your suffering that once seemed impossible to be good. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.